Hey listeners, uh, before we get to today's podcast, I just want to thank our sponsors who make this podcast possible. First off, we have Tiny and Sons Glass. Does your vehicle have cameras or driver's assist? If so, when your windshield is replaced, it will need to be recalibrated. What is recalibration? When your vehicle's windshield is replaced, the safety systems need to then be tested to ensure that they work with your new windshield. Some vehicles require static recalibration, and others require a dynamic recalibration. Not sure who to trust to take care of this recalibration for you? Well, just call Tiny & Sons Glass in Pembroke, Mass. They're experts in auto glass and registered company of the Auto Glass Safety Council. Plus, they make it easy. They will call your insurance company for you. Get your windshield replaced by their highly trained auto glass technicians. And get your vehicle recalibrated so you can be back on the road. Tiny and Sons Glass, keeping you and your family safe. And our second sponsor today is Baxter Blue. Do you experience digital eye strain from too much blue light exposure from digital screens? Baxter Blue glasses are not your average frames. These blue light lenses filter 80% of the highest energy blue light, eliminating 99% of the glare. The past year, we've all been glued to our devices more than ever. And here at Art, we're making more content. We have some video content we're doing a lot of audio stuff live streaming which all means i'm sitting in front of the computer pretty much any time i'm awake i am in front of the computer eyes glued to the screen our exposure to digital light has soared and our eyes and our sleep are suffering as a result baxter blue is also a force for good and provides a pair of reading glasses for someone in need for every pair sold this is eyewear built for our digital age, and Baxter Blue is giving our listeners 10% off the next purchase of blue light sleep or kids' glasses. Click on the link in our show notes for an exclusive discount. This is the sign you have been waiting for to invest in blue light glasses. We know you will love your Baxters, and we know that you will feel the difference. So thanks again for our sponsors for sponsoring the show, and now let's jump right into the podcast. All right, welcome back to the Nebriar Podcast. This is Andy. Uh, I feel like I'm super out of practice. I haven't done one of these in a while. Uh, but today we are joined by uh, uh, yet another musician. We've been on a big streak of musicians lately. Uh, Kenzie K, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, and for so, somebody that is out of pra- practice, you sound very, very professional. Oh, oh man, don't don't use the, the P word. Podcasting voice. Don't use the P word. <laughs> not my. Sorry, my, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Um, but, uh, so I feel like the past year and a half, we can't go through a podcast without talking at least a little bit about COVID and its impact. And here things are starting to open up. We were nine days away from no restrictions whatsoever. Like where are you at as far as that goes? Um, we are in a different place. We, I feel like. I don't know about other Canadians, but I personally have been feeling both jealous and bitter about the U.S. because I feel like for the first half of the pandemic, things were wild and I feel like people didn't want to wear face masks. But then, 
y'all got vaccinated way before us, even though we were trying to follow the rules so well up here. Um, so we, yeah, things are slower moving up here, I think, than they are in the U.S. Um, we're set to review our restrictions in five days, yeah. but there's no guarantees that they'll actually change at that time. It just kind of depends on the numbers. So we're kind of still in full lockdown over here. Like we're not really oh, wow. supposed to even have bubbles. Um, we can see up to 10 people. It's supposed to be the same 10 people outdoors if you're mm -hmm. distanced. Um, but restaurants have shut back down again. We're only doing takeout. And then if they have patios, people can eat at patios. But yeah, we're kind of like, I mean, I also feel used to it at this point, but it, it kind of feels like how it did right at the beginning when it all started. Yeah. Well, don't, yeah. don't be jealous because <laughs> it, it's a lot of entitled people thinking bad making bad decisions around here um i mean our numbers are way down because of the the vaccine rollout which is great but yeah. um we still get people that refuse to take it because they think they're getting microchipped and lizard aliens i don't i don't know what they think man yeah it's, it's crazy i don't know either as though their smartphones aren't <laughs> the most sophisticated microchips the world's ever seen and like anyone wants to track them that's my thing like you don't go anywhere yeah. like why would i track you you know to track yeah to track what activity yeah um so have you been have you found quarantine to be beneficial like for myself it it just sucked the energy out of me i, I didn't want to draw i didn't want to work on anything but i talked to, it seems like it's kind of a 50 50 split where some people like we're like this is great i have a ton of time to work on stuff but... to be honest i don't actually know how much quarantine changed my like creativity output levels mm -hmm. i think that i'm always i always love having like 1000 projects on the go um and that actually didn't change over quarantine like it maybe changed the composition slightly of like how much time i'm spending on which projects but I was working full-time remotely and still am throughout quarantine um, or not quarantine, but the whole pandemic situation there maybe at first. Okay. So there was, I was actually in Nashville when they declared mm -hmm. the pandemic. Okay. Um, and I sort of went knowing things were a little sketchy, but they kept being like, don't panic. It's not a pandemic yet. And then I was in Nashville and I had just kind of planned to extend my trip because I was starting to meet people and do writing sessions and, had a couple of things planned and then on my like second to last day there they declared the pandemic and I found out that I was going to have to quarantine for 14 days when I came home and as I'm sure you remember the beginning of the pandemic was just scary because we didn't know what was going to happen and they were like canceling flights and I was like oh my god what if I get stuck in Nashville <laughs> <laughs> so I canceled my extension and ended up flying home and then I spent 14 days in quarantine in my bedroom because I had roommates yeah. luckily I had my own bathroom but i was like in the same room for 14 straight days Ugh. and just coming back from nashville i definitely had some like creative gas and so i was quite productive creatively during that period mm -hmm. um but then the rest i don't think i don't think has been different than how creative or uncreative i typically am yes it's so funny uh i went out to dinner um two nights ago to this place not super near me but maybe like 30 minutes away and it occurred to me the last time i was at that restaurant was the week we were running an event there and it was the week just prior to the to the shutdown 
Mm. And my partner was like having serious panic attacks. I'm like, man, you're overreacting. You're overreacting. <laughs> so I had to text him the next day. and been like, hey, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Turned out you weren't overreacting. You were right. I hate saying it, but <laughs> I you was, were right. Yeah. It pains you to say, but oh, yeah. we were uh, underreacting, unfortunately. Yeah. So you said you got a lot of inspiration from traveling. Do you, is that like typical for you? Do you like to go on the road and kind of taking the sights there and, and get the inspiration from traveling? Well, it was a writing trip and it was like a music trip. So I don't know. I feel like there's this, not that I think myself anything like Leonard Cohen, but mm -hmm. there's this Leonard Cohen quote where he says like something like poetry. If your life is burning well, poetry is just the ash. Um at the end of like the cigarette that is your life that you're smoking or whatever. And okay. I feel like that's how I feel like there's, I don't, I don't think I'm necessarily more inspired by travel. I definitely in Nashville, it was my first sort of like dedicated music trip. I'd sort of always kept music as a hobby. And then right before the pandemic, as I feel like so many of us did finally decided, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I had been applying to, I'd been planning on applying to grad school and I was like, I don't think I'm going to want to go to grad school if I haven't really like tried with music first. Like, I think I'll go to grad school if I like fail at this other thing. Yeah. Um, but I, at this point, I can't say that I have failed because I haven't really tried. <laughs> um, probably to, no coincidence. Like I've been avoiding failing by not really trying. Yeah. And so I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to spend the next year just like really giving her like, I'm going to invest my money into this. I'm going to invest my time into this. And then at the end of the year, I'll have no excuses. If it didn't work out, I'll go Other to Other than a global school. pandemic. <laughs> yeah. And then the pandemic <laughs> happened. <laughs> the pandemic happened. So I was like, Nashville was sort of like my first thing that I was doing. This was like in March. Yeah. Um, and I'd done a few other things. Like I'd like spent the money for like a demo with a producer that I really liked and had never like prioritized um, doing. And yeah, so Nashville was sort of my first thing I was doing that was like dedicated to music. And then obviously the pandemic happened while there. So that kind of threw off my timeline for like going for it for one year. But um, but anyway, so I haven't done other trips like Nashville before, so I don't know exactly, but I definitely felt really like inspired and productive when I came back after having been around other people who are like so talented and inspiring. It really like made me want to work a lot harder. Yeah. Um, was there and, like a specific place in Nashville? I mean, because Nashville is such like a, a mecca for music. I mean, there's a lot of musicians around here and a good number of them travel down there just to like make the pilgrimage. Was there yeah. like one place where you're like, I have to go to this club or, you know, see this site or like what was on the bucket list when you went down? Do you know what's actually funny is I, so I went for like a songwriting retreat, um, mm -hmm. like camp thing. And it was actually, so I flew into Nashville. The retreat was just outside of Nashville on this sort of like ranch and or farm. And it was really immersive. Like they were long days. They started early. They went late. We did sort of writers rounds until like 9 PM. And then we woke up at like six to do yoga um, to start the day in our bodies so that we could write as best we could. And it was, that was like, I think a seven day or a five day thing or something like that. And on like day two, I was like, this is so cool and fun. I'm extending my trip so I can like see the rest of Nashville. I was like making plans to write with a few people that I'd met through like 
just networking, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, And then because the pandemic happened, I like didn't really end up getting to see Nashville at all, despite having like been there for music because I did the writer's retreat and then, and then I flew home like, yeah, they declared the pandemic on the second last day of the retreat. We just had like a morning session left. So I didn't even really get to see Nashville. That stinks. You'll have to make plans to go back then. Yeah, I know. I've been, I honestly, I have like a producer there now and some friends that write there. And yeah, I keep, I keep very optimistically planning my trip back and then delaying it again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. Like you talk about the writer's retreat and there's something that's like, it's almost like a boot camp type of thing. You know, I never drew better than when I was in art school because you'd spend eight hours a day in class drawing and you just get better so fast but then it's hard to kind of keep that work ethic when you have you know another job or life and try to be social once in a while like how how do you kind of try to maintain that work ethic when you know you're, you're trying to you know get get the career in music started and is that a challenge yes (laughs) a huge challenge I told I'm I relate to everything you just said like when you're in an environment that's structured and you're forced to be working on something for like x amount of hours per day Mm -hmm. it's like so you just accelerate so fast but yeah I that's something that I really struggle with and that was sort of one of honestly my main takeaways from Nashville is I was like I need to be disciplined about this like if I really want to do this I need to be spending like at least one session per week like that should it should be like all day every day really but like I have to work and pay my bills um but like at least one session per week is how much I should be doing as a starting point if not like one hour per day or something like that but I yeah I just (laughs) I also I feel like I'm giving myself too much slack here but I will say that I work in um overdose fatality prevention I work for a co-op that builds things to yeah, prevent yeah. overdoses or prevent overdose deaths specifically. And I don't know how it's been in the US, but the pandemic has really exacerbated the opioid crisis here in BC. Hmm. And I think across all of Canada, but BC, we just report our numbers faster than some other provinces. So we're kind of seeing it happen in real time, like this insane um, spike in in OD deaths because they're shutting down safe consumption sites. And they're like, you can't buddy up with somebody if you're in quarantine or if there's a lockdown restriction or if your building is like imposing these things and isolation is the main driver of overdose deaths. So as isolation spikes, we also see overdose deaths spike. And so honestly, and I don't have any regrets about this, but I I really spent a lot of time on work because that it's just a cause that really matters to me. And music also really matters to me. And I don't necessarily see them as being separate, but if I have like, 12 hours per day where I can be productive. And there, there were like, it's like every single day we had like three or four people dying in BC yeah. and BC is small. BC is like, yeah. not like the size of the state that you're in at all. Um, yeah. So I feel like it just, it's gotta be kind of hard to chisel out time when you're actually saving people's lives, you know? Well, okay. I also want to clarify that I'm not really saving people's lives, but I'm supporting people who are saving yeah, well, people's I mean, lives. Yeah, well, I mean, indirectly. indirectly. No, it's one of yeah. the. I could, I could see where that would be a, a tough, uh, a tough thing to do. Does that yeah, ever kind of filter into your music though? Like that, that passion you have for for what you're doing. Yeah, I think it does. Like, 
I think that I have been told that I burn with the intensity of a thousand suns. And I think, <laughs> Whoa. That, that, <laughs> I think that not always in a flattering way have I been yeah. told that. Um, but I think that same sort of like intensity drives me in like both. Um, and I think like makes me go kind of hard and then have experiences that I then process using song. Yeah. Um, and then in some more direct ways it does too. Like I've written songs about the opioid crisis or like I have it just every, and again, I don't know what it's like where you are, but like here in BC, like every single person I know is impacted by overdose. Mm -hmm. Like everybody knows somebody or has like a family member or a friend. And to be honest, I would suspect it's similar in the U S but I don't know that there's the same degree of like acceptance or understanding of overdose as like a public health and like a policy crisis rather than like a moral failure of individuals. So here I can tell you, we definitely have a crisis. I have no idea how it's been affected by uh, quarantine because it, it just hasn't been on my radar, but mm -hmm. um, it is definitely, and it's really tragic because, and I'm broad brushing, you know, my area in the United States is very generally, but there is a, a very much like, Oh, well, if you didn't want to overdose, you shouldn't do drugs. And, you know, our taxpayer dollars are going to, to, to buy Narcan for you. And, you know, our first responders are wasting their time to, you know, when they could be saving babies instead of saving, your, you know, that kind of thing. And it's, it's mm -hmm. very, you know, blaming of the person who's struggling with addiction opposed to, like you mentioned, safe, safe shooting sites. And I don't even think we yeah. have anything like that here. Um, I yeah. could be wrong, but that I can't. Even in the Massachusetts is a very liberal state, and mm -hmm. even here, I think that'd be have a hard time getting passed. Yeah, I know of a few places in Boston that have some like like harm reduction mm -hmm. things going on, for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, honestly, that happens here too. Like, I think that there is broadly a failure to take into account the like systemic dimensions of the opioid crisis. Like it's, and I, I also think on like sort of an existential level that everybody knows that like at any given time, they're three or four decisions away from being the person who's at risk of overdose instead of sure. the person like watching it all happen. And I think that that's scary. And I think that it's like to, to distance ourselves from that like pain. Mm -hmm. I think that people just say like, it's just, it's like an easy scapegoat and it like is a way of reassuring themselves that it couldn't happen to them and that they shouldn't feel empathy because it is painful. It's, it hurts yeah. a lot to like see, I don't know. And substance use disorders are so complicated um, and it hurts to watch people sort of, um, especially when they, I mean, okay. I have a lot of complicated thoughts about this. I guess on the one hand, I think that it's easy to think of all people who use drugs as sort of being like victims of their addiction. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it's important to note that a lot of people use drugs recreationally and sometimes even like daily, like sometimes people do have technically addictions, but yeah. they're functional and they go to work. And so it doesn't register on our like cultural radar as an addiction because they don't look in our minds like somebody who uses drugs, but and then there's also this sort of arbitrary distinction between illicit substances and legal substances. Correct. Um, and 
like I I don't think that when people think about people who use drugs, they think of someone like me, but like, guess what? I'm a person who uses drugs and you wouldn't know it from looking at me, but like I, yeah, I use, and this is sort of like, a, a, yeah, I don't know. I guess people like everybody uses caffeine. Oh, sure. I happen to use Vyvanse because I have ADHD mm-hmm. and chemically Vyvanse is so close to methamphetamine. Like it's so it's like one tiny little like carbon, I don't know, chemistry, but yeah. I know that they're basically chemically the same thing, but I get mine from a pharmacist and somebody else gets theirs from like an un- unregulated person okay. that might, um, where it's tainted and you don't know what's in it. And so there's, it's just sort of like unfair that I get the sort of privilege of being like a regular member of society because I happen to have access to clean supply where I'm not like risking my life every time I take a Vyvanse so that I can function, but then somebody else who maybe has intergenerational trauma or has untreated um, or treatment resistant mental health challenges or something like that. Mm -hmm. They self-medicate with medications that are very similar to the ones you get from a pharmacist, but because it's an illicit supply, it's unregulated every single time they use that substance, they're risking their life because there could be fentanyl in it now. And, um, and I think I think the thing that you said that really hit the nail on the head is you have complicated thoughts. And I think that the, oh, if you take drugs, you're bad, is the lazy way of coming up with an opinion instead of like actually yeah. really understanding or looking into it. You're just like, oh, drugs are bad. People take drugs are bad. Done. I'm done. I can go about my day and and continue drinking my Bud Light or or, or whatever. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> which is so funny because I'm yeah. like, guess what a bar is? It's a safe consumption site, babe. Like it's a yeah, place where exactly. you. <laughs> Sorry. Keep going. <laughs> oh no, but I I think that that's that's it. Is like, I think definitely Americans, but I think humans in general like to have a very simple black white. Okay, I've I have my opinion formed. I'm going to stick with that for the rest of my life. I don't want to have to think about it, learn about it. And life isn't really like that. It's way more complicated. It is way more complicated. And I stop me if this is getting boring because I could just talk about this for the whole. Oh interview. no! I mean, this is this is but. kind of what we do. We talk about <laughs> my my whole idea behind these interviews are. I feel like if I get to know a performer or creative person as a person, I appreciate their work so much more. Right. You know, so cool. I mean, that's kind okay. of the whole idea. So great. We, it okay, goes so wherever can... it goes. I mean, sometimes it's nonsense. <laughs> sometimes it's super deep and I'm totally cool either way. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, well, in that case, one, I, not necessarily last thing, but a, a thing that I think is also important to, to name when we're talking about drugs in society is that like, it's part of, I think in our minds, we also sort of even, so if we're just talking about illicit substances and we're not sort of talking about how arbitrarily we like legalize some drugs and yeah. not others, if we're just talking about the illicit drug supply, um, I think that there's sort of this like distinction that people have in their mind between like bad drugs and like kind of okay drugs, depending on who you are and what you're into. And well, it's a plan. And- how can it be bad, man? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Totally. And we have there's like pretty much widespread unanimous consensus that, for example, um, heroin and crystal meth and crack are like bad drugs. Yeah. Um, but the thing that nobody says when they talk about those substances, we're so, I think, fixated on this sort of one hit in your hooked rhetoric that emerged in like the 80s mm-hmm. um, under, I guess it was, yeah. Ronald. It would have been like a Nancy Reagan thing. You know, yeah. Just made no Ronald drugs, Reagan kinda, and Nancy. Yeah. 
Totally. Yeah. I think that we, we all sort of accepted that as kids or those, do you remember those commercials that was like, this is your brain on drugs and like cracks <laughs> yeah, so, yep. an egg on a frying yeah. pan. My, my favorite um, was always the, uh, the father that finds was it pot under the kid's bed. He's like, I learned from watching you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately I saw those and I still did drugs. So they didn't work <laughs> on me, but um, they, I think that, that a thing that's really important to note about these drugs that we think of as the like one hit and you're hooked is that the stats don't back up most of our widespread cultural assumptions about the badness and the inherent addictiveness of these drugs. Mm -hmm. So for example, crystal meth in Canada, 90% of people who do crystal meth over their lifetime never do it again, which yeah. is like, yeah. And mm. it's a comparable rate for like heroin and these and crack. And what these, what the actual evidence tells us and what the statistics tell us is that while many substances have an actually addictive component, there is some other dimension to drug use that we can't understand on the basis of like how bad or good a drug is alone. Um, and it's a lot, rather than looking at like a drug and guessing how likely somebody is to end up with a, an addiction based on the drug type, you'd have a lot better success rate at guessing who's gonna end up with a substance use disorder based on things like intergenerational trauma, like a history of abuse, a history of child abuse, a history mm -hmm. of maybe substance use in the family, race, because of things like poverty and the way that these things are so entwined. And so when, yeah, we're so easy to sort of like think about heroin or crystal meth as like a bad drug. And it's like, well, they just shouldn't have done that drug in the first place. But what we don't know is A, they're 90% of the people who are using crystal meth or heroin don't look like the person you think of in your head when you think of right. a person who uses crystal meth. They don't have scabs all over their face and they're not necessarily like living on the street. They look exactly like you and me and they don't tell anybody about the drug use because it's so heavily stigmatized. And like, why would they tell anybody? Because we know how people react. They say like there are people in Canada, just like in the US who support like culling drug users and are like, we should just let them die, which is insane. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. yeah i think that vancouver has a really strong history of like activism among drug users who have fought so hard to have their humanity recognized both culturally and socially and also like at a legislative level um and to be like look whatever your whatever your like perception might be of who i am as a person the facts are that like I'm this many times more likely to die than you. And we know from the evidence that supervised consumption sites work. And we know from the evidence that safe supply works and they like in acts of civil disobedience as a community on the downtown East side, for example, created like makeshift citizen run supervised consumption sites. Like they just literally put up tents and the people who did that were arrested like over and over again. And every single week they were like, I don't care. Like my neighbors are dying. And yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not just going to like sit by and do nothing. And then eventually the state got behind it and now there are state run safe consumption sites here. But I don't know, I guess all this is to say that it's so complicated and I don't think it's less complicated here in Vancouver, but I, I think that Vancouver's had a, a more successful like history of activism for some reason. I don't know if it's, I don't know why exactly. We, and this is my understanding and I'm, uh, you know, I've been to Canada, but I would not pretend to be any kind of expert, but. I feel in the United States, it tends to be religion gets put ahead of mm. statistics, you know, mm. 
and their faith. And so it's like, these are the, uh, you know, statistics. And they're like, well, you know, you know, it it suddenly then becomes about their faith or just that, well, I feel like that's not the case. And you're like, yeah, but the numbers say it is. And like, yeah, but I don't feel that way. And you're like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, um, fortunately, so th- your feelings are irrelevant to the yeah, facts. Yeah, <laughs> so there's always this weird pushback, and, and it drives me crazy because it, it's pretty much across the board in any controversial topic where yeah. it's like, th- these are the statistics, and you can always manipulate statistics, that's true, but, you know, they're just like, well, I, f- you know, I feel it should be easier for me to get a gun because I feel in, you know, in danger. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but you're not. You live in, mm-hmm. you know, this very upscale community no one's breaking into houses there you know but i feel that you know but you're not (laughs) it's not you know it's yeah that that kind of stuff drives me crazy yeah i understand i feel like the the feelings brigade is something that i have a hard time getting behind sometimes i understand it to some extent but i also just yeah i don't know i just if there's one thing i have learned about life both from just being alive, which for 27 years is not that long, but working with people who use drugs on the downtown east side in Vancouver is that like life is very indifferent to your feelings. Very much so. <laughs> and yeah. facts are very indifferent to your feelings. And I feel a lot of things like I feel like fascism is wrong. And yet here we are. <laughs> <laughs> and yet living we this had time four and years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel that ethnic cleansing is wrong. And yet in Palestine right now, yeah. the state of Israel, you know, anyway. Uh, so, so let's talk about music a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Let's circle back. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one thing that I always ask uh, from musicians is because I want our listeners to kind of have an idea of, of the type of music you play. And it's not like, you know, we have music stores the same way you used to where you walk in, there's country rap and heavy metal. So, the, the question I always ask is like, what known musical performer would you be best paired with to go on tour that would kind of make oh. sense? That's, that's a really good question. Um, I think that, okay, well, somebody commented on my YouTube channel the other day, King Princess vibes. And I was like, that's incredibly flattering. <laughs> I love King Princess. <laughs> yeah. But I don't actually think that I sound anything like King Princess in my But opinion. sometimes you don't have to sound like them. It's just kind of that right vibe, you know? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I think that musicians are like the last people that can tell where they fit in yeah. often, to be honest. I I don't know. Like I know who I like. I knew who I I think anyone I would name would be like definitionally aspirational. I don't know that I actually am like any of those people. Um, but like pop yeah, people, like pop like people. smaller pop people, like J.P. Sachs. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, again, I don't think I sound anything like him, but I like sing songs about my feelings in a way that is very blunt. Yeah. Um, I Yeah. And I so you guys are still in lockdown are you hoping tentative like you well you said you were tentatively planning to go back to Nashville like are you trying to make plans to play out or or tour or or record more like what what do you see for the rest of this year I so Canada has a very generous funding system they have like quite a big um 
yeah, and, they have quite and you a guys big... have free health care and stuff. I get it. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Not here to make anyone feel bad. However, <laughs> um, taxes have their benefits. So we have quite a large music fund and um, it's distributed by this, this body called Factor. It's called mm-hmm. like the something assistant Canadian council for arts or something. And they, I'm applying for a grant, quite a big, like it's called the juried sound recording program. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has, it's just sort of like this big chunk of change they give you to record new songs and market new songs and tour and make video promotion and kind of all the things you need to like really um, make a go at it. So I'm applying for that right now. Um, it's due actually like in a, f- like a few weeks. Um, and I have two songs that are like fully recorded and ready to go. Could be released any second. They won't be, but they could be. And then I have two, three other demos in the works as well. Um, and I have plans to turn them sort of all into actual songs that are releasable. Um, but because of the, the factor grant and sort of other things like that, I, I just am not exactly sure of timeline, but hopefully by the end of the summer, I'll release one more song at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so now with that grant, do you have to like, what's the process? Like, do you have to like submit um, your music or, or audition or how, what is that like? It's quite involved. It's like um, there are several components to the grant. And honestly, I'm, I have a grant writer who's helping me and I don't remember what all the components are, but I know what I've had to submit are like, you need assessment tracks. So you can submit two MP3s um, and then you need to like, write down in a document where they're sort of at and what changes you'd make to them. So like I submitted one demo and one like fully finished track. So I have one track that I'm saying like, this is my assessment track. It's good. It's ready to go. No further changes are required. And then for my demo, it's like, well, I have to finish recording. I need to track vocals and then we'll need to finish production and then we'll need to mix and then master it before it's ready to go. Uh, You have to submit like a full track list of all these sort of songs you have that you want to record cord you have to submit like a basically a full business plan and what you intend to spend like every penny on i have like 20 letters of support from different like people in the industry who are like yeah i'll do her production yeah i'll do the mixing um we'll write together or whatever some some vendors like uh radio promo people digital mm-hmm. marketing people um so, yeah it's really it's really involved it's like probably at least a 10 page document um you have to does that, there's does like that some, take any of the fun out of the music that you or, where you're kind of like oh crap it's a job now yes i mean i feel like they're very different things in my head mm-hmm. this does like the grant does feel like a job yeah um but music is a job and <laughs> i feel like a thing that i've been really trying to make myself understand over the last years that like, I have to think about it. Like I think about my other job, like there are parts of it that I don't want to do, but if I want to do this, I just kind of have to suck it up and do it. So yeah, it's definitely less fun. Like I, if I could, but then on the other hand, like even, even if I could just, just write all the time, like I don't only want to be in a writing room for eight hours a day for five days a week. Like I like having variety in my life and I like having experiences that I then turn into songs. So um, it definitely takes some of the fun out, but I also 
it's not like I necessarily would want to be repurposing that time for only music, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's it's kind of like, um, you know, you can't, if you're in a room writing eight hours a day, you can't experience life and then you have nothing to write about. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, 100%. And so, oh, so, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, how would I meet boys who treat me bad on hinge that i then write songs about later <laughs> is that something you look for is being like oh this guy's an asshole let's let's uh go on a date with him so it'll be a song <laughs> yeah so i am starting to think that this is a thing i do yeah <laughs> i don't think i do it for the song but i definitely specifically am like oh you seem emotionally unavailable you should we should hang out sometime here's my number <laughs> my site <laughs> oh, that's funny yeah, it, yeah. it's it's but i mean that's that's part of like i guess being a creative person is you gotta kind of put yourself in those situations to get experience to turn into that those creative juices whatever it is yeah and, you know i've talked to people where they're like yeah i can't can't write the same when i'm happy and it's a real problem <laughs> you know yeah i definitely don't I'm sure for like other artists who say that, I know I'm at least this way is it's like, for me, music is like a coping tool. Mm -hmm. Like it's not, I know there are some artists, for example, Leonard Cohen, he's just top of mind because we mentioned him a while ago, who I feel like he just writes about life. Like he just, he, he's not necessarily like using songwriting as like a therapeutic means to an end. Yeah. He's just like an artist. And I feel like for me, I am like a person <laughs> who processes emotions using song. And I don't know, like sometimes I feel weird calling myself an artist because I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm not like talking about life. I'm talking about my feelings. And I do think there's a meaningful difference between those two things. But yeah, but I think they're both valid and important things to write about. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I feel like a lot of the songs that are about feelings touch people because they have those same feelings and in, in kind of, I think those are the ones that really speak to people. Yeah. yeah. And I guess that's sort of the mystery of art is like you write things that are incredibly personal and then they somehow end up being universal or not universal, but like at least applicable to more people than just you. Right. Yeah. Uh, where can uh, our listeners go to find your music and social medias and all that self-promotional hoo-ha stuff? Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, so on YouTube, I am, if you just look up Kenzie Cates, I think you'll find my channel. Mm -hmm. And then on Instagram, I'm at Kenzie Cates Songs. Kate's and Cates is C-A-T, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Read my mind. <laughs> you know, I'm a horrible speller, so I mean. <laughs> um, it's also always hard with names. Yeah. But, and then on, I did, I did get TikTok. Mm -hmm. I did it. Um, and I How think are you, also what, are you, what, are you, what are you thinking so far about it? Because I signed an art up for it, and I just have never felt older in my life because I'm like, I just don't <laughs> even understand what I'm supposed to do. I had a very similar experience where I was on this, and I was like, look at all these Zoomers just, like, ripping around and... <laughs> and, and like, lip-syncing like to things? I don't, under, I don't understand the appeal of that at all, but... Yeah, and or just, like, having a nice face. And just yeah. like filming it, <laughs> doing nothing. Um, yeah, that was definitely my experience. I started, I started like getting a little bit more exploratory, and I found this like one account 
excuse me, I found this one account who is, I don't know, there are some people who do interesting like political commentary. There's this one person who is like a textile historian or something. And Mm. she is always posting videos about like, um, sort of like the, she posted this one video that was sort of like colonialism and, or sorry, no, not colonialism, capitalism and minimalism. And the sort of like relationship between those two things that was really so as I started being more intentional about it, I found like good content that I really like. Yeah. Um, but I definitely share your experience of having seen some weird things on there. And I'm like, I don't understand. And then I'm like weirdly trying to replicate some of those things. And I made one TikTok video that like did pretty well. It got like a hundred thousand views, but I'm like, I have no idea why that one did. And not <laughs> like I really don't, yeah. <laughs> I really don't like, understand I just, it. I just don't get it. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah it's it's a weird weird thing yeah and then the other thing is that i also swear a lot and so and tiktok like watches for you that and doesn't like swearing all in this. i i guess you're right yeah, yeah. You're, you're on your best behavior <laughs> i am on my best behavior in um in on tiktok every single one of my videos has like a technical profanity in it also like the song that i just released has the word fuck in it like yeah. Every, oh, every way to blow it, eight Kenzie. bars. <laughs> oh, I did it. You did I was it. gonna have to go under explicit. <laughs> um, and all my TikTok videos, I swear. And also TikTok, I did one video where I just used the word dick, and yeah. TikTok labeled it as a profanity. Really? Um, yeah. It's very. It's hmm. a very. It's kind of a narc of a platform, to be honest. Yeah. But it's interesting. I didn't know. I didn't yeah. even know it did that. Yeah, it does. Can tell you from experience. <laughs> if you want no one to see your videos, swear in them, and TikTok will not show anyone. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I want to thank you for taking the time. This was a ton of fun. Um, you, as usual, went in a weird direction. Got very, uh, <laughs> got pretty heavy, but it was it was still really good. And um, you know, whenever uh, you have more music to put out and promote, by all means, feel free to reach out. We'd love to have you back on. Thank you so much. I will definitely do that. And as a parting message, I just want to say that for anybody who is using drugs and listening to this and doesn't know, or no one in their life knows, there is a phone line in the US you can contact called Never Use Alone. Um, You can call them and somebody will stay on the phone with you until you're done using so that you don't overdose because there's no worse way than people finding out that you use drugs than having overdosed. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Do you know what the number, number is? Yeah, I do. Um, there's also, uh, there's, okay, so there's a few things. There's Never Use Alone. Okay. Um, there's an app called the Brave app. Um, and both of them basically do the same thing. Never Use Alone. The number is 1-800-484-3731. Um, and basically you call, you give them your location, um, and then you just chat with them. And then if something goes wrong, they'll be able to to um, call 911, send them to you. The Brave app works much in the same way, except there's a feature for people who don't want EMS or 911 involvement in their call. Mm -hmm. You can enter an emergency contact and Brave will not contact 911 if you don't want, which is like a big thing for some people. Um, And also with Brave, all of your data is sort of kept anonymous and private until your responder thinks you might be overdosing. And then they'll basically send an alert to your phone. And if you're unable to dismiss it within 20 seconds, we take that to mean that that an overdose might've occurred. 
Um, and then it will reveal the details of your sort of rescue plan, who to call and where to find you. So you can also use it anonymously. You don't need an account um, and nobody needs to know who you are. Never Use Alone is totally confidential. Um, so nobody, again, has to know. And then there's also, if there are any listeners in Canada, there's a Canadian version. Um, and that one's called NORS. And I can give you that number as well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, any information like that, it's amazing. I, I had never uh, heard of such a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is 1-888-688-NORS. Um, and yeah, NORS is Canadian. Never Use Alone is American. The Brave app is both. You can call from anywhere. And well, with the Brave app, you can technically call from anywhere in the world. Oh, um, but sort of like sending 911 help, if that's what you want, can be hard internationally. So, right, right. Yeah. But awesome. US and Canada, it's good. Uh, well, again, thank you, Kenzie, for that information. And, and hopefully that, you know, you never want someone to overdose, but hopefully that helps somebody somewhere, you know. Yeah, so. I hope so, just in case. And uh, to all the listeners, thanks for listening. We'll catch you guys again next week. Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. You can find us on all social medias at inebriart or on Instagram at inebriart6. You can email us at inebriart at yahoo.com. And make sure you listen to the other podcasts on the Inebriart Podcast Network, including Bar Talk, Old Colony Cast, Retro Redoctopus, America's Hometown Horror Podcast, and our newest one, Theme Park Legends, a podcast about working at theme parks what else and we'll catch you again next time